The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and thank you for joining us here at Spirit Matters. We have uh, ongoing, interesting, and inspiring conversations with very wise people who will help you along your own spiritual path. I should say, for newcomers, Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss one. Take a look at the previous interviews um, that keep piling up every 10 days or so and uh, take full advantage of them. And if you're inclined, look at spiritmatterstalk.com where you'll see the previous life of this podcast, that the one I co-hosted with Dennis Ramundi for seven years. You'll find a few hundred interviews there, all free. And um, some of the people here we interview now on this new platform, you'll find earlier versions of on the old podcast. And today is no exception. I'm really happy to have my good friend Jim Finley James Finley, if you will, um, with us today. James is uh, a clinical psychologist, spiritual director, faculty member at the Center for Action and Contemplation, and a core teacher with the Living School, both of those organizations, founded by Father Richard Rohr. Early in his life, and we'll talk about this, uh, Jim was a cloistered monk in the Trappist Monastery in, uh, of Gethsemane, where he um, was a novice under the well-known mystic and author Thomas Merton. And after leaving the monastery, became a psychologist, a retreat leader, a workshop leader, and a recognized expert on contemplative Christianity and mysticism. He's the author of several books, including Merton's Palace of Nowhere, The Contemplative Heart, Christian Meditation, and his latest book, which is what we'll talk about mainly today, The Healing Path. Um, I have to say that When uh, I lived in Los Angeles all those years, Jim and I would meet on occasion for breakfast, and I never failed to come away having learned something new and also having had a good time. And we'll do both of those things today, won't we, Jim? Yes, we will. (laughs) Yes, we will, as always. Very good. So let's look at, uh, turn to your uh, spiritual history. I always like to, give our listeners, uh, especially those who are unfamiliar with the guest, a sense of uh, their personal uh, spiritual 
a journey. And in this case, your personal story is so much a part of your new book, The Healing Path, which you subtitle A Memoir and an Invitation, that it's pertinent uh, in, in different and uh, more illuminating ways. So there's, rather than just make it a general question, there's Early in your path, there were there were three maybe turning points, if you will. One was you entered a monastery when you graduated high school. Uh, this was not a typical choice <laughs> for high school graduates in the early 1960s. Um, so one of the questions I'll ask you to address is why you made that decision. And then why the decision of the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky? Was it because Thomas Merton was there, or was that just luck? And the third is, why did you leave after six years and eventually choose the path of psychotherapist instead? So with that framework, tell us, tell us about your past. Yes. Um... Well, I think the story of it is in my own life. Is uh, I was born and raised in Akron, Ohio. It's the oldest of six children. My father was a violent alcoholic. Uh, my mother was a devout Catholic. A lot of their fighting was over religion, actually. Mm. And when she would take us to Mass on Sunday, she would ask us to pray, ask God for the strength to get through the things that happen when Daddy gets mad. That's how she put it. <clears throat> And uh, so it was very violent, starting at age three, really towards me, physically violent, emotionally violent, toward my brothers. He sexually abused my sister. It was a painful thing, really. And uh, so my faith was a kind of a uh, something to hold on to that got me through the, all of that, because I could tell it was that for her, too. And um, so as I was going through all of that, I was in the ninth grade. And I was I went to an all boys Catholic high school, and the instructor talked about monasteries. I'd never heard of monasteries before, and he he described monasteries as places where people go to seek and find and give themselves to God for their own salvation, but also believing that that fidelity touches the whole world in ways we don't understand. And he mentioned Thomas Merton. I'd never heard of Thomas Merton before, and he explained that Thomas Merton. Uh, at, at 28 years old, left a promising career, Columbia University in literature and the arts, had this deep conversion experience and became this cloistered monk under the monastery, which is at the Abbey of Gethsemane Monastery. And a Cistercian order founded in the 11th century by Bernard of Clairvaux, which based on the rule of St. Benedict in the 5th century. So it's an ancient monastic contemplative cloistered life. And so that day after school, I went up to the school library. They had one book by Merton there, The Sign of Jonas, which is a journal he wrote as, as a monk. Mm -hmm. And on the very first page, I was 14 years old when I read this. Merton said, he said, as for me, I have but one desire, the desire for solitude, to disappear into the secret of God's face. And at 14, I didn't know what that meant, but something in me didn't that me too. 
And so for the four years of high school, the violence got worse. The depth and the beauty of Merton's words about God and the presence of God and the life really sustained me to the point that I felt called that I wanted to enter the monastery. And my master plan was I would sit at Merton's feet and he would guide me into this deep experience. And uh, so when I graduated, my father didn't know I wanted to go to the monastery. So when I graduated, he didn't go to my graduation. He was drunk. And uh, so I went out and I told him I wanted to go to the monastery. And he wanted to know what a monastery was. I explained it as best I could. And he said, if you go to that place, I'll kill your mother to punish you. He said, that's not a threat. I'll kill her. And I walked away. I left the next morning. I was used to that this world I lived in. So uh, I entered the monastery. And Myrna at this time was well known. Because after he entered the monastery, he wrote his autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, after Dante's Paradise is a seven-story mountain. And it went on the New York Times bestsellers list. And he went on to write many books in contemplative spirituality, also in social justice, uh, uh, the uh, seeds of destruction, and conjectures of a guilty bystander. So it was against the Vietnam War, against nuclear armament, pro-Dr. Martin Luther King, he was a poet. He was also very active in interfaith dialogue. So the Jewish philosopher and mystic Abraham Joshua Heschel came to visit him. The Buddhist monk Ting Nhat Hanh came to visit him from Vietnam. Uh, he was had a very deep involvement with mystical Islam, with the Sufi uh, tradition. A yogi came from India to found an ashram. Uh, I tried to find the name of that yogi. I couldn't find it. You probably know who it was. And uh, he, uh, if I said his name, you might. So anyway, he came and uh, we wanted to learn hermitage. We did the postures and the breathing together. So, so he introduced me to this interfaith, contemplative, mystical lineage. And I lived there as a monk. It was a cloistered life of chanting the Psalms, simplicity and prayer. And he led me in the guidance of the classical texts of the mystics, Christian and non-Christian. I had a chance to study medieval metaphysics and philosophy, Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure. And it had a profound effect on me. And he was my teacher. Merton was my, as novice master, he guided me along this path. You know, I want to interrupt for one second, Jim. Um, as you said, Merton by then was very famous, but he chose to stay in the monastery, and he wrote there and had these famous uh, correspondences with uh, spiritual teachers from all the traditions what it would seem to me that uh, a monastically inclined young man who was drawn to the monk's way of life that many of them would want to be at Gethsemane under Merton right so how was it you were chosen well, uh, the thing is, is when I when he wrote Merton's when he wrote Seven Story Mountain, the Second World War was going on, and the book touched a lot of people with a sense of yeah. hope, and people would come back from the war, entering the monastery. So I don't know how many monks were there. It was really through his writing. Maybe two or three hundred monks were there. So they founded daughter houses. They sent monks out to found. A different mm -hmm. monasteries in the United States. So a lot of people were drawn there because of him, and I was one of them. Yeah. But when I entered, I had to be interviewed by the novice master and the abbot. John Hughes Bamberger was a monk. He was also a psychiatrist. They interviewed me, and I got accepted. Mm -hmm. 
of high school. So I, I, I went and entered, and there Merton was, and oh, you know, wonderful, yeah, changed my life, yeah. So that's how that happened. And by the way, just to jump ahead too with Merton, um, he later on when he got interested in interfaith dialogue, he was invited by the Dalai Lama to uh, come uh, exchange with dialogue with him. And it was an interfaith dialogue in Bangkok, Thailand. He got permission to go. And while on that trip, uh, uh, December the 10th, 1968, he met with the Dalai Lama. He was at this conference. And he was actually, he was electrocuted there, Bangkok. Yeah. And there were rumors the CIA killed him because there were rumors about Martin Luther King and uh, mm. all the stuff, whether it was accidental. So he's 53 years old, same day Carl Barth died, the theologian, uh-huh. 53 years old. So he was just one of these bigger-than-life gifted people that touched many people's lives, and I was one of them. And uh, so then later, also I'm jumping ahead, but then when I did leave the monastery, I wrote a book called Merton's Palace of Nowhere, mm-hmm. Ultimate Identity Beyond the Ego. And I was married, and that's what started me leading silent meditation retreats around the United States and Canada. And out of that, I was offered a scholarship for a PhD in clinical psychology. If I would explore the contribution of the mystical lineages to mental health, and I got my doctorate and went into full-time practice and so on. So why, I want to backtrack a second. Why the decision after six years to leave the uh, monastery? Yeah. I didn't want to leave. I, I uh, was very much at home there. Um, if I had stayed two more years, I would have made solemn vows. I would have been ordained. I would have gone to Rome for further studies and come back. But what happened with me is I was sexually abused by one of the monks. It was my confidant. Oh, and I, I had a breakdown. And my, so I didn't tell the abbot. I didn't tell Merton. I didn't tell John Hughes. I had no refuge. I just left. I just left. Dropped out of the church, came home, and... Uh, I got married. First woman I ever dated, I married her. It was an ill-fated marriage. And uh, I, I, I dropped out of the church because I, I couldn't see how God could buy into an outfit like that. I was so traumatized. So I would get up early in the morning and do a, a quiet time. I'd do yoga. Merton introduced me to yoga and to zazen. And then what happened is I started reading Merton's writings out loud, the same way that I would read the sutras. Hmm. And I was, read, I was drawn back into kind of mystical Catholicism, mystical Christianity, and uh, it kind of changed my life. And I like to, I like to read a, a famous little passage by Merton Please. to give an idea how he talked, how he wrote. This is in a little book he wrote called Thoughts in Solitude. <clears throat> this is Merton. <clears throat> my Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire, and I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Mm. That's Merton. So, I could see where, given the um, traumatic circumstances of your uh, your childhood and your adolescence, that that would. Uh, 
that would be a, a guiding light kind of thing. But now you, you, I'm curious, Jim. You talk about how faith got you through during those years with a, a violent father and so forth. And I have to say that reading your your memoir, uh, the stories are horrific and uh, heartbreaking. Um, but you say that faith got you through. At the same time, uh, I, we all know people for whom uh, suffering and injustice and the uh, unfairness of life and, you know, trauma do the opposite. They pull them away yeah. from faith. They, it pulls them away from anything uh, connected with uh, belief in, in uh, God or anything like that. In your case, it did the opposite. How do you how do you explain the two different directions that trauma could take people? Yeah. Well, well first of all, I say this too as a psychotherapist. You can see why people were traumatized. It's like, how could God let this happen? Yes. To me, how could it even be real and let that happen? I understand that. You could see how people would do that. And everyone has to walk their own walk and so on. Um, for me, where I was at with this is that I say I understand. I say that God is a presence that protects us from nothing, even as God unexplainably sustains us in all things. Now that was a a, a line in the book that I yeah. underlined and was going to ask you about. So please elaborate. Yeah. Okay. So whatever it means that God takes care of us, Jesus says, "Without me, you can do nothing." Take it doesn't mean that god takes care of us as in preventing the cruel thing the unfair thing in christian terms it's the mystery of the cross hmm. there's no promises it isn't promised that we're taking care of at that level but i would say in faith god depends on us to do our best to be a nurturing protective person and to protect others grounded in a peace it's not dependent on the outcome of our efforts because maybe by human standards it'll go down in flames really. And so for me, what it was for me, I think, is that when I was little, which is my experience, one of my earliest experiences, I was maybe five years old, I was lying in bed at night in the dark, I was listening to my father beat my mother outside the door. And I was sad, I remember, because maybe earlier that day hit me or it yelled at me. And so I took my mother's words to heart, and I prayed to ask God for the strength to get through this and to me how i put it in a moment i can't remember god heard my prayer came to me in the dark and merged with me that's how that was my experience so then when i woke up the next morning it was much better mm -hmm. because violence went on but my father when he thought he was hitting me he was hitting that other little boy that people can see he didn't know the real me was taken by God into a secret place he didn't know about. Later, years later, when I became a psychotherapist, I learned that I was dissociating. Mm. All the religious imagery of my mother to give meaning to dissociating. And years later in therapy, I had to learn not to depend on dissociating. But the fact I was dissociating doesn't mean God did not merge with me, mm. sustain mm. me, and guide me. That's the, the subtle mystery of faith, you know, I, you know. When when you hear the word dissociate, uh, it sounds like a uh, almost pathological kind of diagnosis. Um, 
interesting is. In my experience, it's fascinating because a lot I have seen descriptions of uh, psychiatric descriptions of dissociation that sound very much like the mystical experience of witnessing what what the the uh, yogis call witnessing that sense of uh, having uh, an identity that's uh, more than beyond the identification with the body and the personality and stuff. So how do we understand when something like that can be um, uh, debilitating in some way and when it can be understood as a desirable uh, spiritual experience? Yeah, that's a good question. And how sometimes the same word can have very different meanings based on the context. Mm. Yeah. So I want to give it first in the meaning of the mystical traditions. This would be Buddhism or yoga. It could be mm. uh, Kabbalah, Jewish, anything. These mystical traditions say that um, we're walking around in a dissociative state and that we're exiled from the divinity of every breath and heartbeat. Mm. That, that ultimately speaking, just one thing is happening, that the infinite presence of God is presencing itself and pouring itself out and giving itself to us in and as the intimate immediacy of our very presence, the presence of others in all things. So to really, 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 really see all that we really are, we'd see that if the, the generosity of the infinite is infinite and we are the generosity of God. We are the song God sings, but our capacity to realize it is traumatized. So spiritual awakening, faith and spiritual awakening is actually learning not to be dissociated off from the divinity of every moment and to live by it. And another mark of the mystic is that in these mystical states, these unitive states of non-dual consciousness, um, the temptation might be because it's beyond the darkness of this world. Like, I'm out of here. I'm off into a celestial realm. Mm. But really what it does is it radicalizes our commitment to the world. We come back full circle to be a spiritually awakened person who walks the roads of a brutal, unfair, dark, beautiful, divine, and mysterious world. That's how Jesus lived. See? And so the relationship of mystical union to social justice or the corporal works of mercy, the mark is that it heightens response, uh, sensitivity to suffering. How can I be helpful like that? So dissociating then is really a, a heightened state of awareness that heals us from being dissociated off from the divinity of awareness itself. Mm -hmm. it, pathologically dissociation is a book I used to use with my patients in therapy. It helped me. There's a book by Judith Herman called Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. Yeah, that's just, and what it is, what the diagnosis is, is that, that when we're traumatized, especially as children, and repeatedly traumatized as children, is that that trauma takes three forms that we internalize it as adults. One is somatic disorders, eating disorders, and so on. It gets ritualistically reenacted through the body. The other is the personality disorders, like borderline splitting, like intense reactions of rage, and so on. And the other is dissociative disorders. And the person is dissociated off 
from the immediacy of their experience mm -hmm. to survive so that when they were little dissociating saved their life but you get trapped in it and you grow up as a dissociated person now which raises havoc when you try to be married to somebody <laughs> you try to be real because you're disconnected and so really the healing and therapy is how not to rely on dissociating see how to how to be how to understand it work through it and integrate the fragmented off traumatized aspects of yourself to be more present and hopefully out of the process to become all the wiser for it you know like deep transformative healing so that we're dissociating that has two very different uh meeting but in some mysterious way they touch each other see that's what my book's about what are the ways in which trauma and the presence of god meet touch and intermingle with each other that 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 place is very uh precarious mm -hmm. the trauma can flood and overwhelm not only our experience of the divine, but even we lose ourselves in trauma. But um, but it's also possible that sometimes out of trauma a light shines through. See? That 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 shines through the brokenness and sustains us in it and guides us in it. And so a lot of the way I did therapy, my whole sense of a lot of people that came to me for therapy wanted their spirituality to be a resource in their therapy. Mm -hmm. See how can I access the depth dimension and draw up from it the wisdom and the courage to touch the hurting places with love, like this. So that's that's the sense of it, I guess. When I was reading about your uh, childhood, um, I was struck uh, just by the uh, ongoing series of traumas that seemed like, you know, daily trauma. And uh, you were the oldest child and therefore had were, was given responsibility for, in a sense, protecting the others, which probably added to your burden. It made me curious. You, as a young boy, found grace amidst all this and it led you on this incredible path yeah. of uh, mystical spirituality. What about your siblings? They presumably had similar experiences. How yeah. did they fare? I want to share a minute about myself, a decisive moment. When I was in the seventh grade, all this trauma was going on. I was the oldest of six. And my mother came to me and she said, after you kids go to sleep and daddy's on the kitchen drinking, he gets so angry. I'm afraid he's going to kill me. And because you're the oldest, I want you to sit at the top of the stairs and listen. And if you think he's going to murder me, I want you to run down the stairs out into the street and pound on the, pound on the neighbor's door. So I would sit at the top of the stairs. Is he just choking her again? Is he just pulling her hair, killing her? And if I wait too long and he kills her, am I responsible for his, her death? Yeah. And if he beats me to the front door, will he kill me? And I sat like that every night. And then I would go into my room, close the door. I would light a little vigil light in a little blue glass vigil light. There was a statue there of Mary, an icon of Jesus. There was the Bible. And I would turn out the lights to wrap a rosary on my hands. And I would bow over the way devout Muslims pray and touch my forehead to the floor, asking God to give me strength. And I would get in bed and go to sleep. So there was a strange interplay of this and, death. And I'm sure when you went to sleep, 
you were worried that you might go to sleep prematurely. And yeah, although I have to say that it didn't dawn on me. I think it's because I would stay up until I thought it was safe. He would wind down. Mm. He would just become incoherent and go to sleep and she'd come up. I, I wouldn't go to bed until I thought, you know, that it was over. Mm. It doesn't mean he couldn't have gotten up and done something, but it never occurred to me. I, I, I don't re- recall ever having that ah. thought. And uh, so anyway, that's the way I, I lived. And I, so when I went to the monastery and lived in silence for six years, I think it was what well, had such a radical effect on me about God and Living, having Merton to guide me and so on. As to my siblings, uh, I have one brother. Uh, we were all traumatized, all physically traumatized by him. We were traumatized by seeing him physically traumatize my mother. And uh, it had a, a lasting effect on all of us. And uh, what happened for us, really, is each of us in our own way among the brothers, we were able to talk about it. Hmm. We they all been through therapy, and one brother and uh, two of them in Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. So actually, it's been very bonding hmm. for us, I think, to process the trauma, how we moved on from the trauma, how it still can catch us sometimes. Hmm. I had one brother I was very close to, and uh, he died maybe five years ago. He had a very rare neurological disorder. And I was very close to him. He's kind of AA saved his life, really. So I had a very good relationship with him. My sister, I always had a good relationship with her, but um, it was complicated with her with the incest. Yeah. Because the thing is, because of the incest, he was the she was the only one in the house he never beat. And therefore, she was bonded. You know, it formed like it's it really very destructive. It was very confusing. Oh, sure. It was traumatized in a very different way like this. And so for that reason, we're at a place right now, we mutually agreed not to talk to each other, mm. out of respect for each other. And I respect her. She's got to walk her walk, I walk mine. And she's a good person in her own marriage and teaching yoga and with her kids and her grandkids. And, you know, everyone's moving along in their own way. So that's the story with the siblings. Yeah. Other, after I left the monastery, and got married, my first marriage. My mother left my father. Uh-huh. And then the last five, eight years of her life, she lived in a mobile home, very active in her parish. They were the happiest years of her life, really. We used to talk a lot. And uh, she died unexpectedly of minor heart surgery. And it was the very next day, my wife and I, Maureen, were in Maui on our vacation. And the very next day is when they flew the planes into the World Trade Center. Oh, God. Died of a heart attack, and they closed down all the airports. Like this, yeah. we couldn't fly out. And, oh, God. She did a good life. She, you know, she had her own courageous walk to walk, and she ended it by being true to herself. And, you know, that's my mother. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. It made me very curious about the rest of your family and, and whether they also had, in their own way, uh, found grace and, uh, you talk about the the bittersweet alchemy between uh, trauma and transcendence, and you also talk about patterns that sustain us through trauma, spiritual patterns. Could you elaborate on that? I know, uh, you know, everybody to one degree or another has 
been wounded in life and that informs their path. I'm sure, you know, our listeners uh, can relate to one degree or another to your, your story and maybe, uh, you know, find encouragement in the notion that there's transcendence in trauma. Uh, please elaborate on it for them. Uh, these are the opening sentences of my memoir. In writing these reflections, I'm inviting you to join me in following the path, the way of life, in which we're healed from all that hinders us from experiencing the steady, strong currents of divinity that flow on and on in the bittersweet alchemy of our lives. And so by alchemy, I don't mean the patterns where sad times give way to happy times, give way to sad times. Nor do I mean the pattern where sometimes they're happening simultaneously. There's one aspect of our life we're very happy about. You know, that I don't mean that. By alchemy, I mean like the alchemist of old who tried to turn lead into gold. See, mm -hmm. that somehow that one can be quickened from within by a grace that doesn't stop the trauma from happening. But it but transcends the trauma, is ribboned through the trauma unexplainably, and sustains us and carries us forward unforeseeably, as according to how our life unfolds. So how would we then, this one way of understanding the depth dimension of psychotherapy or of deep sitting practice, can we see? How can we be healed from all that hinders us from experiencing the alchemy of that divinity that's ribboned? through life itself. And having found it, how can we learn? Because once we taste it, I think we all have moments where we taste the oneness. Mm -hmm. And then what can start to happen with some of us is a desire to abide in the depth so fleetingly glimpsed. So say in that again? Uh, it's the desire. So there, let's say there's a moment of oneness. Mm -hmm. says, sometimes they happen in the midst of nature. Mm -hmm. He talks about walking out alone in the midst of nature, and he said, you turn to see a flock of birds descending, and as if out of the corner of your eye, you sense something in their descent that's primordial, vast, and true. Sometimes it washes over us in the arms of the beloved. Sometimes it comes to us reading a child a goodnight story. Sometimes it comes to us in a quiet hour at day's end. But from time to time, there's this hallowed sense of oneness, like, what a fool I am to worry so, like this. But it passes. But what happens in its passing is the desire to abide in the depths so fleetingly. Because mm -hmm. there's the intuition that in these quickenings, sometimes they're very intense, actually can change your whole life. But usually they're very subtle. Right? You get the intuition. It isn't that in those moments something more is given, but a curtain parts, and the abyss-like divinity of every moment fleetingly graced your life. So how can I learn to abide in the depths so fleetingly? And that's the path talk. Mm. That's the journey. So this is the long journey to the uh, to the ashram, or to the <laughs> gates of the monastery, or to the sangha. The gateless the gate. The gateway, exactly. Or how in my the own palace of nowhere to the use palace of nowhere. <laughs> and, and how can I learn in my own home, watering the house plants and living my yeah. life? How can I learn to abide in the upwelling of the grace divinity of the miracle of every breath and heartbeat? And by learning to live by it, how can I learn to share it with others by the way I treat them, the way I listen to them? And so really the book's essentially about that, really, mm. I think. It's a word of encouragement. 
Tim, in my experience, uh, many people um, set foot on a spiritual path, um, it, whatever the path may be, and they're motivated by um, perhaps heightened experience that they get uh, in their community, in their uh, contemplative practices, and the promise of greater fulfillment and divinity and so forth. Often that's interpreted as this path will end my suffering. There won't be any more of these difficulties that life has presented me until now. I'll be, they'll be gone. Yeah. I'll be done with. That often leads to disappointment, and I'm speaking from my own experience as you know, a young man who set foot on the path and uh, remember, I read the Bhagavad Gita and said, "I want what those people had." <laughs> and I remember a passage that promised that the, the yogis have equanimity in loss and gain and pleasure and pain and victory and defeat. And I said, God, I want that. I'm so sick of this. And I, I didn't notice that it says you can have peace in the midst of pain yes. and loss and suffering, not that it will disappear. Because you know we're human. Do you have you run into that with people as well? A, a, a disillusionment that you know life's difficulties continue, and that the the task is to uh, find the grace, nevertheless. Yes. By the way, I think this is built into life itself. You know, when you get married, it's bliss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, or you you have a child. It's just ecstasy. It's yeah, just yeah. everything. Is, everything has this this quality. Uh, where I say you despair or go deeper, despair or go deeper. And I want to share uh, an anecdote from Buddhism rather than the Christian tradition about yeah. the middle way. There's a lovely book by Baum, B A H M, on the middle way. And here's mm. how he put it like this: uh, The Buddha taught that we we suffer when we desire. We suffer when we have determined that the conditions necessary to be deeply happy are other than the conditions that I'm in. <laughs> as long as we keep doing yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, the Buddha said, <laughs> he says, and therefore, to stop suffering, you have to stop doing that. See? Yeah. To the extent you desire to stop doing that more than you're <laughs> actually able to stop doing that, the very desire to stop doing that will cause more suffering. Right, right. right. Therefore, the middle way, the middle way consists <laughs> desiring to stop doing that while accepting your inability to do that and discovering in the deep acceptance of the inability you're being sustained by a depth that's ribbon through the conditions of life, mm. but isn't reducible to them. I love the story about the Buddha. You know, he, he had this great awakening. And for years, as an itinerant preacher, he taught the Dharma into old age. And he died of accidental food poisoning. Mm. And the legend is, I'll paraphrase it, is his attendants, of course, were very distraught. And they said, we're going to go tell the cook what he did. You know, you killed the Buddha. <laughs> and he said, don't do that. 
our brother has enough self-esteem issues as it is. <laughs> uh, he'll be in therapy for the rest of his life if you tell him that. He so said, to speak. Yeah, so to speak. He said, besides. Oh, Jim, you froze. Movie, um, uh, uh, a meal. Yeah, back up a back. little bit. Your oh, yeah. audio Buddha, froze. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Buddha said, besides, which is better? A meal lovingly prepared to nurture the body of the Buddha, or a meal lovingly prepared that unintentionally sent the Buddha to his final liberation. Mm. See? That's <laughs> compassion. See, yeah, that's yeah. equal mindedness. See, yeah. That's another and you know, another image that strikes me about this too is you know the stages of dying. Elizabeth Kubler Ross, like denial, mm -hmm. anger, bargaining, and death. All those first stages are the ego coming to the end of itself. She says, she says, some people come to acceptance. She says, not everybody comes to it, but acceptance is freedom from the tyranny of death in the midst of death. And when you look into the face of the dying loved one, it's like the gate of heaven. Mm. Really. So what is freedom from the tyranny of suffering in the midst of suffering? Freedom from the tyranny, the deathless life that never dies in the midst of a dying world. And that's interiority that we can find our way to yeah. speaking of which you open the book and it's deeply moving well partly because i i met maureen uh and you you open the book with um her dying or, or uh, her the days pre preceding her final passing this is your beloved wife maureen and um it's it's these are very moving passages and you know speaking on a personal level i know you know you and i got together a few times during those uh during that period and i remember you know what it was like for you um and you found grace in that loss and in an illumination in uh those uh days leading up to her her passing um all of us will deal if we haven't already we will eventually deal with uh death and the loss of people very close to us um say something about that i'm going to just i'll cue you one of the passages in your in the book was when we die we do not go anywhere yeah i let want me, you to explain yeah, that right, let me do that okay uh maureen and i were very close and uh she was a therapist and a spiritual director and i was that also and uh we're together for 30 years and really a blessed life. I say two Irish Catholic with Buddhist tendencies living at the edge of the sea. And yeah. it was bliss, just real bliss. And um, she died of Alzheimer's. And she died in-house hospice. Her bed was right here in the living room. Her ashes, are, I sit there every morning right where she died. And her ashes are next to me. And my oldest daughter, who's a hospice nurse, was with mm. me. And I wrote this, uh, the the night before she died, she died the next morning. So I'll, I'll read the passage you mentioned. Please. Because set the tone for the whole book. <clears throat> These reflections mark out a path, a way of life, in which we as human beings may be healed 
from all that hinders us from experiencing the steady, strong currents of divinity that flow on and on in the bittersweet alchemy of our lives. As I write this introduction, I'm immersed in these intimate depths, sitting next to my beloved wife, Maureen, as she lies here dying in the final stages of Alzheimer's. Even though she is unconscious and cannot open her eyes to look at me, I believe she can hear me as I speak from my heart in whispered words. Just now I told her that the ways of unbearable pain and crying that come from time to time to overtake me seem to soften a little as I learned to be more accepting of the immensity and mystery of her death. After all, immensity and mystery have been woven into our years together from the very start. I just now shared with Maureen a memory that I've shared with her many times over the, our years together. The memory is about how deeply affected I was by something Thomas Merton said to us novices not long after I entered the cloistered Trappist Monastery of the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky where Merton, as novice master, was my spiritual guide. He encouraged us to realize that when we die, we don't go anywhere. We don't orbit the earth a few times and take off to God in some far-off celestial realms. For as scripture tells us, in God we live and move and have our being. All the angels, along with all the blessed who have crossed over to God, are here with us in the vast interiority of God, in whom we subsist as light subsist in flame. And then I say that when she died, I was so traumatized by the loss. I would literally walk back and forth here in the living room, screaming out loud, crying. I loved you so much. I loved you so much. I knew this depth was true, but I, my capacity to live in it was traumatized. But as the months went by, it softened. And so now I'm very aware of her deathless presence. Mm. I'm very aware of it, that the body falls away, but the who we ultimately are in God uh, is eternal. It's, 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 it's eternal, it never dies, it's, it's, it's unto God. And, uh, and so I say it, I'm 80 years old, and I'm at peace here living where we live for 30 years, the ocean here. And how I put it, I feel old, sad, lonely, fragile, amazed, and grateful. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also I also realize that eighty years old, I'm not stuck here forever. I'm dead. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a temporary arrangement. So how I put it, we're here for a very short time. Essentially, I think to learn how to love. Mm -hmm. basically. So when we're born, I say it poetically, this infinite love exhales us onto the earthly plane. And we live our, through time learning to love. And in God's good time, infinite love inhales and it comes full circle back to our infinite destiny in love. And speaking, that's my, my life. I, I, yeah. Speaking of inhaling and exhaling, your description of uh the moment of death is very Buddhist, actually. Uh, you say the moment of death itself is not an event, but a cessation, okay. meaning the cessation of breath. Like, you know, uh, we breathe in, we breathe out, and at some point we'll breathe out and not breathe in. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's, that, that's right. I love a saying of the Buddha. Uh, a saying of the Buddha was, he says, subject to decay are all compound things. Mm -hmm. Everything made of parts falls apart. But there is that which is not made of parts, and can you find it? 
mm-hmm. strive in diligence. See, and uh, that's the essence of all religious consciousness. I think in its depth is that. So now, with all of your life experience, all of your contemplative practice, all of your study, and having not too long ago uh, suffered uh, the loss of your loved one, of of, uh, your beloved, um, what do you think happens after you stop inhaling. <laughs> yes. Here's what I think. This is what okay. the tradition teaches. Yeah. Uh, how I put it is on this earth, we experience, understand, and respond to God's presence veiled in faith. Like as, as in a mere darkly, Paul says. Gabriel Marcel calls it a, an obscure, a primitive inner assurance. And we learn to live by this faith that God's with us. The measure of this faith is love. And when we die, we live in hope. When we die, we're not annihilated, but consummated. So what happens when we pass through the veil of death, we move from the veiled awareness of God's oneness with us into unveiled awareness. We learn, we become as much God as God is God in our eternal nothingness without God. <laughs> That's the infinite generosity you know, of our destiny. To be a mystic is God decides with some people not to wait until you're dead to give you a taste of that. That to be a mystic, I think, is this unmediated divinity Mm. that touches you, not just as a fleeting moment, but as a calling in your heart to to follow it and to to yield to it that it might have its way with you. Mm. Being divinized and transformed by love into love. That's my sense of it. Speaking of the uh, mystics and uh, the Christian tradition, uh, how does uh, John of the Cross's concept of um, the dark night of the soul uh, fit into the contours of your book, which is about finding transcendence and trauma? Yes. Uh, St. John of the Cross, a Spanish mystic, which we of Avila, 16th century. Here's the way he put it, what he means by the dark night. He says, yes, it's true that uh, God is given to us, mediated through faith, through consolation, through insights, through inspiration and aspirations, and so on. And what can happen is that sometimes God realizes that we become attached to these finite ways of experiencing the infinite presence of God. And so what God does, the dark night of the soul, is God withdraws the capacity to be consoled. Uh, He draws the capacity in faith, the way he puts it in faith. He says, uh, imagine somebody born blind who's told about the color yellow. He would know through faith the color yellow exists. But because he's born blind, he has no essential knowledge of what yellow is. He says, that's what God is like. We say God is eternal, God, but we don't know what it means. Mm. And therefore, what God does, God withdraws the capacity to be nurtured in our emotions, nurtured in our feelings. And he said, in that absence, in that deprivation, 
love. He said, if we don't panic, he said, oh, night lovelier than the dawn. Hmm. He's a great poet. He says to God, who's he's in the middle of the in the middle of the night. He says, uh, "Where have you gone, beloved, and left me moaning like this?" And he and he he says, "It's not fair that you do not carry off this heart that you have stolen, because I live not where I live." See, mm. and and the longing uh, you begin to discover that this longing for God is an echo of God's infinite longing for you. And little by little, you discover God's the infinity of your longing. And he says, oh, night lovelier than the dawn, which is in the spiritual canticle and mystical marriage, is this unitive mystical state for John of the Cross. John of the Cross had a very profound effect on me. Did he? His poetry and his teachings over the years, he still does. Yeah, beautiful mystic. Um, actually, something you just said, I remember, um, and I'm not you know, a, a, a diligent student of Western mystical tradition. But I remember reading a quote from uh, Simone Weil, yeah. where she said, um, the longing for God is like, uh, she compares it to uh, two prisoners separated by a wall, but they can communicate through the wall. And the wall that is the separation becomes the means of communication and therefore communion. Yeah, I so love Simone Weil. Really, is a Jewish mystic, and just her commitment to extraordinary person. Her book "Gravity and Grace" and "Waiting mm -hmm. for God" so touching. And uh, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And she had, I actually, she had some of these deep experiences, Jewish, but in Christian context. Yeah. yeah. That's about being in a little village and there was a kind of a pilgrimage. People were chanting and praying and carrying a statue. And she started weeping and fell to her knees. You know, she had these deep, she's an extraordinary woman. So we're going to, now I'm turning to the Mystics podcast. I want to have some sessions on her. Ah, uh, yes. I so, like yeah. her. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned I forgot to mention in your uh, my when I introduced you that you have a podcast called Turning to the Mystics, and uh, I was going to ask if you're still doing it. Evidently, you are. You're still involved with uh, Richard Rohr's center, and your your teaching, presumably mostly online. Um, and I want to ask about. Um, the sort of contemporary spiritual landscape, because you've been a part of it for a long time. And, um, you know, as you know, this is an ongoing interest of mine. And, and I've written about the, uh, the effect of the Eastern teachings on, on Western American spirituality. And one of the things I've observed is something you've been a, a close part of, which is this, incredible growth of interest in the contemplative and mystical aspect of the dominant religion in America of Christianity. And, yeah. and you, you've been a part of it. How do you explain that? First of all, am I correct? Is, or yeah, yeah, yeah. I? <laughs> yeah. Here's how I, here's how I explain it. It's complex, but here's how I explain it. The Protestant Reformation, Luther, was formed as much by the Enlightenment period as a badly needed reform of the Roman Church. 
And by that I mean this, in the Enlightenment period is the emergence of science. Mm-hmm. The emergence of science. And on the emergence of science is turning to scripture as proofs, like proof text. And you can flip back and forth and look at proof text to prove things like proving something. Whereas the mystical traditions would say they're even capable of proving it. It's not God. <laughs> because you're proving an idea. And so the Reformation then with proof text, I have a lovely book here called Apologetics and the Eclipse of Mystery. Apologetics mm-hmm. is proving it. with, te- And the Catholic Church joined right in with the Counter-Reformation. They started trading proof texts back and forth. And Karl Rahner, one of the great Catholic theologians of the Vatican Council, he said, what we're all thirsting for is mystikaji. We're searching for the intimacy, the unexplainable, like the divine fire, like the birthing of this fire, like this. So I think we've been so influenced by uh, the science is so important in its own way, but it's it, it, it's a coup d'etat. It, it's overtaken the longing for intimacy, and you can see it in an atheistic, materialistic. Mm-hmm. Thomas Merton says, some people never see a tree until they're ready to saw it down. And they never see themselves except as lumber yield. See, how can it be useful? How can we think we are what we do? Therefore, the more they do, hence the fear of growing old, the fear of dying. He said a lot of Christians are losing their faith and they're losing it in church because the Christian tradition isn't teaching its own mystical heritage. And so that's what has meant so much for me with Merton and with Richard Rohr is rediscovering this. And by the way, when Christians go to that place of mystical union, of oneness, uh, I, uh, these religions all meet each other. Yeah. That is, the, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the, the Sikh, the, the, the whatever, the, the more they all converge at the center and they recognize each other. Merton once said, religion, the world will not survive religion based on tribal consciousness. Right. But if those who have been awakened in their own tradition by the mystery that transcends the tradition and they would speak like religio, the true this and so this is one of merton's messages yeah really. i always well, say that uh if you bring religious people together they may end up fighting but if you bring the mystics together they yeah. just have a good time together yeah. i love <laughs> it sorry there was a lovely series called the long search and this person spent a month like in israel on a kibbutz with the jewish family and then in france with a catholic family mm. And in Saudi Arabia with a Muslim, he, he he went around to all these religions. And at the very end, he shared what it was like being with all these religious people. Mm. He, he thinks that really, if they could all get together at one time in one place, it'd be an argument so loud you couldn't hear yourself think. <laughs> <laughs> but if he could gather into one room the people in each tradition that had the most deep effect on him when he was in their presence, mm. put them in one room, there'd be silence and mm. a deep respect for each other. Nice. And silence would be more resounding than all the yelling, you know, outside the door. And That's I, great. I all right, Jim, we, we don't have much time left. I want to come back to the theme of uh, your book, The Healing Path, and um, any messages you have for our listeners. And I'm going to uh, prompt you with uh, a sentence from the very first page of the introduction that I think is uh, what the book is about. The secret opening through which we pass into wholeness is hidden in the center of those wounds we are most afraid to approach. 
What do you mean by that? And what advice can you give our wounded fellow listeners? Yeah, that'd be a good way to end. Actually, <laughs> and at I, the beginning, yeah, it's and it's the beginning. That's the first paragraph. <laughs> uh, I, I put it this way. I say this as a therapist. Let's say you call me, you want to see me for therapy. And for the first session, I have no idea what you want to work on other than the little bit you told me on the phone. But I've done it so much. I already know what's going to have to happen in our time together. If the healing you're hoping for is going to happen, you'll show up, we both sit down, you'll talk and I'll listen. At a certain point, I'll say, I want to ask you a question. So I understand you. And it's a real question. But the question I ask is such, you can't answer without pausing to listen to yourself first. And in that little pause, you're becoming more present to yourself in my presence. See, Then I say it back, are we together? Then I say, I have another question. We pause and we get to a certain place where we'll get next to the hurting place and we can tell because you'll tear up. See, Or you'll change the subject or you'll laugh when you say something sad. And I'll say, you know, if we don't get close enough to touch it, it festers. But if we move too fast, we'll get re-traumatized. Mm-hmm. Let's back off. Let's back off. And how can you learn to approach the hurting place with love and touch it with love to the suffering dissolves in love and find inner resources to do that? And I have found this close to Carl Jung, too, in the archetypes, that when people really follow that path all the way, when two people are that way together, they're on holy ground together. Another way that I put it on, on this note is that when we risk sharing what hurts the most in the presence of someone who will not invade us or abandon us, we can learn not to invade or abandon ourselves. That's really true. We can be reparented in love by someone who treats you the way you deserve to be treated from the day you were born. That's true. But what's also true is when we risk sharing what hurts the most in the presence of someone who will not invade us or abandon us, we can come along within ourselves what Jesus called the pearl of great price. Mm. You're sensibly precious in your wayward ways. See? And uh, Merton says it is that in us that no one can destroy, no one can diminish it because it belongs completely to God. And you can't do anything to diminish it either. And when you come upon the jewel of it, like this, you can learn to live by it and to walk through the preciousness of your wounded heart as a healing journey and share it with other people. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jim. It's always great to be with you. And uh, this is especially great because I get to uh, share you with all the listeners. Listeners, you will do well to uh, Google James Finley, uh, go to Amazon and uh, read his books, uh, especially the most recent, Healing Path, a memoir and an invitation, and um, his audio books as well. Um, and I invite you to uh, subscribe to the podcast. I urge you to please uh, tell your friends about it. Um, listen back to some of the previous ones at your uh, pleasure. And um, find me at my website, philipgoldberg.com. Please subscribe to my mailing list. I send out useful information, not junk. (laughs) And uh, 
we'll see you again next time. Thanks again, Jim. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks for the lovely interview. Beautiful. It was a grace for me. Thank you. I'm Laura Worcester, host of the Intuitive Life Podcast. As an intuitive medium and teacher working with the world of spirit, I love to share the peace that comes with the awareness that our departed loved ones are still with us. And I also love to help people explore what it means to live an intuitively led life. Start listening now on mindbodyspirit.fm or wherever you get your podcasts.